The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, 
As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The word of the Lord. Father, as we come down to this reading, um, it's a strange one uh, and disturbing and comforting and wonderful all at the same time. And many of us will have uh, different ways of relating to it, but we ask that you will cut through uh, everything in this story and that you will speak to each one of us um, that we would be able to uh, ultimately see who you are more clearly uh, and be found uh, with you as our protector, and that we would know the security that comes from that. So please speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, it's helpful if you turn back to page uh, 7 and 8. It's a big, long reading, and it's, it's uh, boy, it's a heavy one. And it's an important one. In fact, um, this is going to sound audacious, but it, this is one of the most important stories in the history of humankind. Um, it's audacious to, saying that, to say that. But it's not very difficult to justify that this is one of the most important stories um, ever told. Um, if you take out, so this is the story of the Passover. If you take out the story of the Passover... Uh, then you will not have Judaism as we know it. Uh, you will not have the Jewish people uh, as we know it today. And similarly, if you take out the story of Passover, if you take out this story, you will not have Christianity and you will not have the church as we know it. And if you think about the influence that Judaism and Christianity, uh, the Jewish people and the church have had down through the last uh, a few thousand years, uh, the impact that they have had on other cultures, the impact that they have had on the history of uh, humankind, um, then if, you know, it's not hard to see that this story impacts a wide range of human people today, but also history for the last, uh, well, some, somewhere around 3,000 years. So it's a very, very important story. And that's true. Uh, it's important that we understand the story, even if you are not somebody who is uh, ready to embrace Christianity, or maybe you think that this is a terrible story. But nevertheless, it's an important one, at least for its influence. However, it is also crucial... Uh, more fundamentally, it's crucial because if you want to understand the Bible at all, if you want to understand Christianity at all, if you want to understand all the other stories that make up the Bible, then you have to understand the story of the Passover because this is really kind of like an operating system story. It's a story that uh, it ends up animating the meaning of many other stories of the Bible and the fundamental story of the Bible. So it's crucial. 
And so what I want to do today is look at it. We're not going to be able to look at every aspect of it, but we need to look at it. And what I want to show you is that in this story, God's justice and judgment, which is going to be very provocative uh, and very disturbing, God's justice and justice on the one hand and his mercy on the other hand, I want to show you that they are not competitors in this story, but they are allies, fundamentally allies. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to look at God's justice and judgment first, which is going to be difficult, and then we're going to look at how God's mercy is uh, in a deep and fundamental alliance uh, with it. Let me show you. Uh, first of all, look at verse 12 in the reading, and we'll just go straight to the extraordinarily disturbing bit. Um, the Lord says that he is going to pass through the land of Egypt, and he's going to strike down the firstborn Egyptians in the land, they're, they're going to die. Now, just internalize that for a second. How do we deal with that? Let me fill in the backstory just a little bit. Um, so, many years before this, hundreds of years before this, the people of Israel had entered Egypt as economic migrants. Uh, and they had been originally welcomed into Egypt by the pharaoh of the day, and they had contributed to uh, the, uh, the nation of Egypt in a variety of really important ways, and they had blessed the nation. However, in uh, Exodus chapter 1, we saw this several weeks ago, a new pharaoh regime comes to power, and the new regime has a new policy. The policy no longer sees the Israelites as contributors to Egyptian society. They see them as a threat, and therefore the pharaohs do two things. The pharaohs enslave the whole nation of Israel. But then also, uh, the pharaohs start to try to control the Israelite population by killing the children, uh, particularly by killing the boys. So it's a terrible situation. And then comes Exodus chapter 4. And in Exodus chapter 4, by this time, God has intervened. And God uh, tells us that he prefers to be called the Lord. Uh, he's gotten deeply involved. And what he does is through Moses, he says to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, do you remember this if you were with us a few weeks ago? Pharaoh, I consider Israel to be my firstborn son. Uh, I've adopted him. And that means, Pharaoh, that you're holding my son hostage. And that stops now, Pharaoh. Stop it. Let my son go, Pharaoh. And if you do not let my son go, then you're going to lose your son and the sons of your nation. Now, what I, need, what I want you to see is right here at the beginning of Exodus, at the very first interaction between the Lord and Pharaoh through Moses, a proportional response is being set up here. Um, what I mean is that on the one hand, the situation is that Egypt is killing Israel's firstborn son. Well, actually all their sons, not just their firstborn. And Egypt, according to the Lord, is holding God's son captive, the whole nation. And so the Lord says, Pharaoh, if you keep it up, then you should expect a proportional response from me, and you're going to lose your firstborn sons. Now, Pharaoh refuses the terms out of hand. 
And so the Lord, rather than going straight to the threatened judgment, rather than going straight to what we find happening on Passover evening, the Lord, in his judgment and justice, is patient. And we get the uh, nine rounds of sanctions. We talked about this the last few weeks. The nine rounds of sanctions, we often call them plagues, that were meant to increase the pressure and communicate to Pharaoh that the Lord wasn't messing around. And the Lord says, Pharaoh, let my son go. Ten. Nine. Pharaoh, I don't play around and I keep all my promises. Eight. Pharaoh, listen to me. Let my son go. Seven. Six. By this point, all of Pharaoh's uh, leaders and advisors are telling him, Pharaoh, this is above our pay grade. There's something going on. You're going to have to negotiate, but he won't. So five, four, three. Pharaoh, this is the last time you can turn around. Two. Passover. As you read the story of Exodus, the Lord's justice is weighty and frightening and profoundly disturbing. And there's a proportionality to it. And there's a patience to it. Because there are nine rounds of sanctions before we get to this terrible evening. Now, I know, friends, that even as I describe that... A lot of us are going to be sitting here going, this is terrible. What do we do with a God who is willing to take the lives of the firstborn of Egypt? Does that trouble you? It troubles me. And I suppose that one of the things, however, that we need to do as we wrestle through this is to put yourself in the place of Israel for a moment. Put yourself in the place of somebody who has been oppressed and who has been oppressed under a power that there is no chance of escape. There's no uh, higher court of authority that you can appeal to. Um, how would Passover evening seem from that perspective? Let me go a little bit further here. Look at verse 12. Do you notice how the verse 12 says that the Lord is going to judge on this night all the gods of Egypt? Now, this is very, very important because in Egyptian society, like I was just saying, Pharaoh and his gods were the highest court in the land, right? They're the ones that defined right and wrong. They're the ones that defined ethics and morality. What they said was just was considered just principally because they said it was just. There wasn't anybody to appeal to above them. But here, the Lord comes in and asserts that his justice has universal jurisdiction. So the Lord comes to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, and he says, up until this point, everyone has understood that your power is the greatest power in the land. And therefore, if you, if you oppress somebody, there is no way to escape that oppression. But here the Lord says in verse 12, Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, your authority is now limited. 
The Lord says there is a justice that is higher than you. And the Lord says, Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, you need to understand that you are from this day forward directly accountable to me. Now I point this out partially because it means that this is going to be really, really bad news for some and really, really good news for others. It's going to be really, really bad news for uh, totalitarian regimes and individual bullies. Because what it means is that they will have to face God's justice in the end. Just like Pharaoh does. But on the other hand, it's also good news for anyone who has wondered, is there a justice that will ultimately hold human power accountable in the end? Or is the oppression that we experience in this world, does it just simply have the final day? Is justice really just a matter of uh, humans competing for power and who, whichever power happens to win in a given moment in history, that's going to be the final say. But fair, uh, a Passover night comes and says, no, 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 no. There is an authority that is higher than just human com com competition and power politics. The Lord claims final jurisdiction above all political power and even above the will of the people. His justice is universal. And that's why oppressed peoples have read this story and have always read this story as very, very good news for them. And why it's very often deeply disturbing to those of us who are comfortable in positions of privilege and power. But then it, gets, it ends up being uncomfortable to everybody. <laughs> so let me show you the, the flip side. Look back at the reading. Do you notice that Israel ends up under God's judgment as well? This is the part that's a little unexpected. So all the plagues before this, and everything in, e, in Exodus up until this point, it's clear that God's judgment is going to come down on, on Egypt and the regime... But Israel is uh, rescued and does not come under judgment. But this one on Passover night, it's a little bit different. It's importantly different. Israel's firstborn, did you notice that? Look back. Israel's firstborn sons are vulnerable to God's judgment as well. Here's what I mean. On Passover evening, God is going to strike down the sons of all in the nation. Egyptian and Israelite as well. The Israelites get a way out. But at this point, it's important that we see that God's justice on this night is not ultimately tribal, and his justice is not ultimately racial. And later on in the story, what we find out is that Israel was complicit in at least some of the guilt of the larger Egyptian regime. And this critiques something else that a lot of us feel. Um, well, very often, and we kind of default to this idea that um, there are kind of two, two, two types of people in the world, right? There's um, good people, and then there's bad people. And we like to, usually, we like to put, place ourselves in the good people pile, and then we look at the bad people and kind of say, ooh, aren't those people terrible? And we feel better about ourselves because we can point out something bad in somebody else. Now, Exodus comes, and on Passover night, there's a deep way in which we have to see that the Bible says it just doesn't work that way. That's too simplistic. On Passover night, Egypt is accountable for God's judgment, and so is Israel. And we're going to have to deal with how Israel escapes in just a minute. But we have to first take into account 
that the Bible teaches that all of us fundamentally and ultimately are under God's judgment. All of us, like Pharaoh, can expect to come face to face with the justice of God and he will hold us accountable. Now, super uncomfortable, right? But then there's going to be some of us here who say, well, even if that's true, it just doesn't seem like it's real. Right? Can you identify with this? There's some of us that just kind of say, listen, um, even if that's what the story means, I just, I don't see God zapping people. Do you see God zapping people? We don't see God zapping people. And therefore, the idea of God's justice and judgment just doesn't feel real. Let me say this. Um, Remember that there are many true things that cannot be seen. Uh, illustration. Um, my family, my parents, live in this beautiful mountain valley in California. Um, thankfully, it's not burning right now, although there were some fires nearby. And I am told that through the valley, or very close to the valley, um, runs the San Andreas Fault. Uh, and apparently what that means, I'm told by geologists, is that the hills on one side of the valley are slowly heading south, and the hills on the other side of the valley are slowly heading north. And apparently, eventually, this wonderful valley is just going to get ripped in two. Um, Nobody talks about that when they're selling houses in that valley. Um, And and we don't have to because, you you know, man, it's just a very quiet valley. It it doesn't look like that's happening at all. Uh, However, I'm told that, that what happens is scientists take very, very close measurements and then they feed those, uh, that data into a computer simulating modeling sort of thing. They can take all that data and sort of accelerate it, speed up the dynamics that are happening imperceptibly. And then what you can see is this kind of animated uh, uh, model where the valley on one side is heading south, the valley on the other side is heading north, and you can speed it up and take hundreds and maybe even thousands of years in just a few seconds and you can see what's going to happen. You can gaze into the future. Now, many true things cannot be seen. And God's judgment in the Bible is like that. There's an inevitability to it. But because of God's patience, it's very, very slow. Even slower than what we can see. And therefore, what's unique about this night of Passover is that this was a particular night where God suspends his patience, so to speak, and accelerates his judgment and justice so that in one night you can see what will one day happen to us all. God's God's judgment and justice is patient, but he moves with the inevitability of a tectonic plate. And that brings us to just the very, very difficult problem. Because the terrible, difficult problem on the night of Passover is that if God's judgment is universal, then it means we are all of us ultimately on the hook for it. It may not feel like we're going to face God's judgment, but on the other hand, tectonic plates move slowly, but they do move relentlessly. How do you deal with God's judgment and justice? Quick side note, did you know that this is one of the reasons, one of the motivators behind Christian nonviolent resistance? Did you notice this? 
Do you know that? Uh, very often we imagine that um, if, if we want a people who are committed to nonviolence, nonviolence in the way we resist evil in the world, that then what we need to do is we need to have a God who will never ultimately judge, but a God who loves and never executes justice. Um, but actually in the Christian tradition, the opposite is the case. Uh, there's a, um, uh, a theologian from Yale called Miroslav Volf, and some of you may have read his, his writing. But he famously, famously makes this argument. He's from Croatia, and he has a background having experienced uh, a war zone. And he says, when you're in a war zone, the only people who are incentivized, I'm paraphrasing here, but the only people who are incentivized to not take up arms and not enter into the cycle of uh, revenge are people who have a deep expectation that one day God will judge the perpetrators of evil. And on the other hand, if we believe in a God who will never bring the world to justice and will never bring perpetrators of evil into judgment, then that means that there's a logic to saying, I've got to take up arms myself and I have to execute revenge because otherwise justice is never going to happen. And he says that the idea of a God who uh, never takes up justice and judgment he says, really only holds in a very comfortable Western life. Now let's get back to the story here. Because here's the problem. God is relentless, patient, proportional, and universal in his judgment. And it means both, ex both the Egyptians and the Israelites are, on account are accountable for it. And when you see that problem, then you're ready to see how justice and mercy work as allies. Look back at the story. Did you notice how Israel, uh, how Israel relates to this whole thing? Does Israel, let me ask a question, does Israel feel scared on this night? Or do they seem, do they behave frightened? Are they sitting in their homes shaking because of God's justice and judgment? It doesn't appear that they are. Look at the, look at the text. They are in their homes Feasting. Now, what's, what's important about that? Well, feasting is not normal for slaves. Feasting is not what you do when you are desperately frightened of God's judgment. And that's the point. Why do I say that? This, the fact that they're feasting means that they are not slaves anymore. They are not afraid of God's judgment. Why? Why are they not afraid of God's judgment? Why are they free? Why are they so secure, given that they're on the hook? Look back at the text. It's because of the lamb. And it's a strange thing that they have to do with the lamb, isn't it? So they take a lamb, one-year-old, it has to be perfect, verse 5, and then they kill it. And then they take some of the blood, and bizarrely, they wipe the blood over the doorframe of their house. And then they eat the lamb, roasted, as a family. What's going on there? Look at verse 13. The Lord says, the blood will be assigned to you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, notice the word sign. The blood on the door is a sign for Israel, but it is also a sign for God. It's a sign for Israel because it means that if they place the blood over their doorframe, it means that they are placing their full trust in the Lord. By killing the lamb and by painting the blood on their door, it's an indication 
that they are not trusting in Pharaoh's protection or his regime. They're not trusting in the gods of Egypt anymore. They've shifted their allegiance. They're not even trusting in their own Israeliteness or in their race or identity or goodness or anything else. They are trusting exclusively in the mercy of the Lord. It was a sign of trusting surrender to the Lord and his mercy. It was a sign for Israel, but it was also a sign for the Lord. Look at verse 13. It's when the Lord sees the blood that he passes over. And Emmanuel, um, this is one of the strangest and most important ideas in the whole Bible. <laughs> what does this mean that the Lord sees the blood and passes over? Well, if as a camera you pan out, zoom out, and take into account all that will come in the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, then it seems that what was happening is something like this. It means that when the Lord looked at the blood, it was a sign to the Lord that his justice had been totally fulfilled through a substitute. It was a sign to the Lord that a lamb had died instead of anyone else in that household and that therefore all justice had been satisfied and all guilt was gone. And then because all guilt has been put away and justice has been satisfied, instead of approaching that house as Israel's judge, the Lord approaches that house as Israel's protector. Look back at verse 13. Do you see the phrase, I will pass over you? That's where we get the word Passover. Well, it could be translated, I will stand watch over you to protect you. And here's why that's so important. The Passover does not just mean that the Lord simply avoided judging Israel and passed on by. It means that the Lord took up watch outside every single Israelite home to protect them in love. And that explains something of why Israel can rest in such security in their home. J just think about this. This is the night of their liberation. This is the night then when they stop being slaves. And what do they do that night? While the Lord is out there winning their freedom, they stay home and feasts. And like I said, slaves don't do that. Slaves don't ever stay home and they never get to feast. That is something that only free people do. But on this first night of their new freedom, the Lord has become their protector. And his judgment has been turned away. And all that remains for Israel on this night is the Lord's attentive and loving protection. It's as if the Lord stands outside each one of their homes and says, Israel, because of the blood of the Lamb, nothing will harm you tonight. I stand between you and all disaster. And nothing will harm you tonight. And all of it's because of the blood of the Lamb. And it's a strange idea. Isn't it strange? How can the blood of a lamb do anything? I don't know. And I guess that's, that's the right question. Because when you look through the rest of the Old Testament, it becomes quite clear that the first Passover was the beginning, but this Passover was never meant to be the end. Because all through the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, there's this growing sense that Israel's sin 
is deeper and God's justice is more righteous and appropriate than we could even anticipate at this moment. And therefore, Israel and all of us need a, a better sacrifice to take away our guilt. And so the whole Old Testament looks back to Passover to see how, at least in principle, God's justice and judgment and his mercy can join together in allies. It shows, at least in principle, how that can happen. But also the whole of the Old Testament looks forward with this yearning and this desire that a better sacrifice and a better Passover is to come. And then many, many, many years later, when Jesus Christ goes down to the River Jordan... To be baptized, his cousin John the Baptist looks at him and he stands up and he points at his cousin Jesus and he says, Israel, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Lamb that every single year on Passover we have looked back to a first lamb, but we have desired a better lamb. There's that better lamb that takes away the sin, not only of a household, not only of an individual, not only of a nation, but a lamb of God that can take away the sin of the whole world. See, the first Passover was a sign, but Jesus is the reality that it points to. And now let me come back to those of us who are looking at this story of the Passover and you're saying, yes, but, yes, but is it right? How can God take the lives that he did on the first Passover night? And if that's your struggle, it's a good struggle. Don't bury it. But consider this. Jesus adds something to the story. Jesus is the eternal son of God. And therefore, the death of Jesus means that God is not, palace, is not callous to the pain that you're concerned about right now. What I mean is that on the first Passover, Pharaoh lost his son. On the greater last Passover, God gave his own son. And that means that everything that troubles us about God's justice, God himself has personally experienced. He's not a distant observer, nor is he even a distant judge that issues out sentence and then says, well, at least it's just, but he's callous to its impact himself. No, our God, the God of the Bible, is one who has himself experienced the full weight of his own justice. And so if you struggle to trust a God who can judge in this manner, then I counsel you to sit in front of the cross of Christ and look up at Jesus, giving himself for you, suffering in himself the full weight of God's justice and holding out mercy to you the whole time. And there in the face of Jesus Christ, you will see how God's justice and his mercy can be allies. But now, finally, let me speak to those of us who have trusted Jesus. For whom Jesus is your lamb, who takes away your sin. Let me ask you this. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Come on, we've all got it. What do you do with it? Do you justify yourself? Hey, on average, I'm better than most. I'm in the good pile. They're in the bad pile. Ah. <sighs> 
Do you ignore it? Do you hide it? Do you try to do a bunch of religious things because deep down you're kind of scared of God and you're like, well, if I, if I, if I up my religious performance, then that, that makes God probably not like, dislike me a little. Let me say this. Can you imagine what it would be like to be 100% honest about your guilt and at the same time 100% secure in God's forgiveness and affection and love and delight in you? That's what it feels like to be free. If you want that, then Emmanuel, look to the death of the Lamb for you. Emmanuel, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then Jesus' blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, is painted over the door of your home. And that means that all of your guilt is canceled and all justice has been satisfied and mercy reigns over your house forever and ever and ever. And that means the God who is, right, who is the righteous judge is now your protector standing in front of you and for all eternity, not just one night, but for all eternity looking at you and looking out from you and saying nothing will hurt this one tonight. This one belongs to me. This one is my child. This one was purchased through the eternally significant blood of the Lamb of God. This one belongs to Christ and therefore neither, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate this one from my love which is in Christ Jesus. And there when you hear God as your protector standing in front of you, protecting you from all eternal danger, that is when you will be able to see and say and know down in the depths of your soul that I am free. And that is the joy of the child of God. And it is your birthright. Do you know it? Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.